0: Good morning. It's good to be with you all today. We are in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, we're probably all aware of this by now if you've been around uh, at all. But we are doing a series called Outside In. We're looking at stories and teachings of Jesus where he focuses attention, his love, uh, on those that are considered on the outside, outcast, marginalized, marginalized. Uh, and he challenges at the same time those who are on the inside to think differently, to do better, uh, to renew their minds, to repent of their insider-outsider uh, worldview. Uh, and we see Jesus doing this everywhere, right? Um, as we we're long enough in this series now where you, you sh- sort of should be like, wow, this happens a lot. <laughs> uh, it, this could have been a longer series because... Uh, The instances of how Jesus breaks down these boundaries and brings people in um, is literally on every page. So um, today we're going to look at another one of these instances that happens directly after what we looked at last week. So you don't have to turn very far. If you found last week, you'll be able to find this week because we're still in Luke 13. So uh, we're starting in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 13 verse 10 and we're going to go all the way to verse 21. It'll be on the screen, I believe, uh, but you can follow along too. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her, called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days. Not on the Sabbath. Am I putting enough inflection there? (laughs) I think it's called for. Verse 15, the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people... Yeah, that's right. Amen. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. And it grew and it became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked what should I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Um, I'm going to apologize on the front end because I feel like what I'm about to say is going to be very disorganized and unprepared or at least less prepared than I'm used to being. And I'll mention why that might be Uh, later on. But if you don't notice that it's any of those things, then forget I said this. Okay? We'll just move forward. Uh, But let's proclaim some good news right up front, okay? The good news that we proclaim today is that nothing, nothing, not the forces of hell nor the forces of entrenched religious power are enough to stop the mustard seed of God's kingdom from taking root. Right in the middle of all of the internal and external forces that cripple and bind us, Jesus invites us to a place of safety where we can encounter his loving, healing presence. Today, friends, today, he calls us, he sees us, he speaks to us, he touches us, and he frees us from the bonds that oppress. Friends, go. From your places of hiding into his loving embrace. Before we get to the heart of the story, uh, which obviously is this encounter with this woman and Jesus, I want you to notice first that there are very different reactions, responses to Jesus' healing. Very different. What are the two, two groups of people, right? What's, what's one and another? Nate, just did you notice? What's up? Yeah, the leaders and the people. All right, in no particular order, let's talk about the people first. The vast majority of the people do what in response to Jesus' healing? They rejoice, right, at the wonderful things. They interpret this as good news. They receive it as God's true Sabbath, that God is now, today, releasing people to experience real rest and hope through Jesus' healing touch. Now, you have to remember that uh, these people who are rejoicing probably knew this woman very well. They had been with her when she had sought healing in various ways over the course of 18 years of affliction. Many of them had probably been used to helping her in and out of the synagogue Saturday after Saturday after Saturday sitting next to her, checking in on her, seeing if she needs anything. Or maybe there were some people who knew about her but distanced themselves from her, thinking that they might actually become like her if they got too close. And yet regardless of their disposition, all of them rejoice in her healing and what Jesus has done. The seed of God's generous restorative kingdom, despite the way that they may have seen or treated this woman in the past, have been planted in their hearts forever. This is what Jesus is talking about in the parable that follows this story. It's why Luke includes it here, because it gives explanation to what the story means. We often, like, chop up our Bibles as if they're all these little individual pithy kind of uh, sayings, but but Luke puts this here as a as a referendum on the story so he's saying in a sense that even though the activity of god seems small small in the face of oppressive demonic forces and religious systems god's kingdom of freedom and restoration will not be hindered it will grow and grow and grow to provide safety to the weary, and it will infect every aspect of life in the community. Watch and see. Many will find refuge, just like this woman has, and the crowd is rejoicing as testimony to the fact that this reality is breaking in. But not everyone's rejoicing. Not everyone. Jesus' work often has a bifurcating effect. Some receive it as good news, and others receive it as the worst of the worst inconvenience on their lives. The synagogue leaders have a very different response. See, they're used to practicing Sabbath, um, but their Sabbath isn't um, to provide rest. It is to exercise power over people, and at the same time neglect the burdens of those that they claim to shepherd. See, for them, the Sabbath is the absolute worst time for God to manifest His compassion and mercy. God has six days to do His work. Today is our day. Right? Our time to shine. Our time to teach. Our time to build up our uh, stature and our influence notice that good religious principles, I mean like what's wrong with keeping Sabbath, right? I mean it's, it's the only uh, one of the ten commandments that's repeated twice. like it's it's a pretty important one. But this good religious principle, like others, it can and is used as a weapon to perpetuate evil power. This means it's possible, it is possible, friends, to cite scripture and yet be in opposition to God, the God who wrote that scripture. It's possible to hold orthodoxy, right belief about God, and wield that orthodoxy to ignore the very work that he's doing to free the oppressed right under your noses. It's possible to be elevated by a community into a a position of power and then use that power to abuse those who've elevated you to that position. It's possible. It happens every single day to this day. But this is a warning. It is a warning to people like this, people like me, to be sober-minded about positions of leadership And at the same time, it's an encouragement to those with no power that Jesus is still in the business of exposing the hypocrisy of self-interested leaders because he is the shepherd of the flock. These people who hoard this influence, Luke tells us, were humiliated. This is what happens to those who oppose the good shepherding of Jesus. So, of course, Sabbath is a good thing. It was God's idea. But God is not content for his people to keep on Sabbathing, to to rest and reflect on God with God's people at the expense of those, like this woman, who never experienced rest. God sees them and is for them. In fact, uh, Isaiah 58, which is one of the primary Sabbath texts, that the synagogue leaders would use uh, to quote to people as evidence of the fact that they should come and participate on Sabbath week after week after week. But Isaiah 58 doesn't just talk about Sabbath. It also talks about justice. And so verses 9 to 11 say, If you do away with the yoke of oppression... With a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. And your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. you, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. The burdens that the religious leaders want to actually keep in place because those burdens keep the status quo of their religious hierarchy, those are the same burdens that Jesus makes his own. Our burdens are his burdens. And so Jesus doesn't care what he needs to do in order to attend to those burdens. He will reframe and upset entire religious systems to meet you. He will humiliate long-standing leaders to free you. He will scandalize those who would put their own religious power before God's kingdom of freedom. It's because the good news today is that nothing will stop this Jesus. Not the forces of hell, nor the forces of entrenched religious power. They are not enough to stop this tiny mustard seed of God's kingdom from taking root. Right in the middle of all the internal and external forces that cripple and bind us, Jesus invites us to a safe place where we can encounter his loving, healing presence. Today, he sees you. He calls you. He's ready to speak to you and touch you, and free you from the bonds that oppress. Will you go to him? Will you come out of hiding and embrace his loving embrace? Let's get to the heart of the story, shall we? The heart of the story is focused on this unnamed woman and her encounter with Jesus, a woman who's been doubled over for 18 years with a physical condition that Luke ascribes to spiritual forces of evil. And this condition that she's endured has robbed her of her dignity and rightful place in the community. This isn't just a physical ailment she's dealt with. Because I've been trying to wrap my mind around this this week, of imagining what it would be like to live with her perspective on the world. I can't fathom it. To be unable to stand up straight. To be unable to face the world. To be unable to look anyone in the eye. To be unable to connect. Unable to be included as an equal. This woman, she is caught between spiritual forces that she's powerless to defeat and a religious system that's told her for 18 years, not today. Maybe she's without hope. Maybe she's angry at God. Maybe she's tired of watching her own tears splash on the floor. Maybe she feels trapped as a prisoner in her own body, unable to look away and look up to see anything different. And Imagine. Imagine her surprise when she hears Jesus call her forward. His love, meeting her right where she is, making her freedom from bondage central to the conversation about how God's love is breaking in, right then and there. I saw a painting of this scene this week that's helped to illuminate some of it for me uh, by an artist and preacher named Barbara Schwartz. Yeah, that's it. And... um, I love, I love that um, in this painting, Jesus himself is bending down to her level. I love that he sees her with eyes that nobody else has used to look on her condition. Eyes of compassion and hope and new possibility. And those eyes, friends, those eyes may just be the first eyes that she's looked into for 18 years. There are many stories of healing in the Gospel of Luke and others. Um, This is the only one that I know of where the person healed does not ask or beg for healing. She is simply invited to trust Jesus by coming to his side when he calls to her. Her healing doesn't depend on her faith or the faith of others, like in other stories, but solely on the willingness of Jesus to intervene and meet her, to touch her, and declare freedom over her. Friends, nothing can stop this Jesus. Not the forces of hell, or the forces of entrenched religious power. God's kingdom, uh, mustard seed size though it may be, will take root. Right in the middle of all the internal and external forces that cripple and bind us, Jesus invites us to a place of safety where we can encounter his loving, healing presence. Today, friends, he sees you. He calls you forward. He's ready to speak to you, to touch you and to free you from the bonds that oppress so go from your hiding places into his loving embrace friends what forces what forces internal or external are crippling you and keeping you in bondage today where do you need Jesus to meet you and to heal you um I debated for the last 48 hours whether or not to share this story because I know it's going to have some effects, okay? And I'm going to say right up front, I'm fine, okay? I'm all right. I had a week, but I'm okay, all right? If you have questions, talk to me afterwards, all right? I'm sure I will get many. Um, But I spent uh, about 18 hours in the hospital this week, See, I knew it. I knew it. I could, I, all right. Cat's out of the bag. Let me explain. Um, I've been dealing with bouts of pretty um, severe fatigue and lightheadedness for a few weeks now. Um, and it would come and go, and it would, it would go long enough that I wouldn't really think about it very much, and then it would come back in a force. Um, but it's been happening regularly. Uh, so it all kind of came to a head Thursday, Thursday night, um, when it got so bad that I could not stand long enough to make my kids' lunches for the next day. So um, we debated for a while and ultimately decided to head to the ER uh, so that they could run a battery of tests and use me as a human pincushion for a day or two. Some of you know what that's like. Uh, so, so Mandy drove me like 10 o'clock at night uh, there, and I ended up staying the night and being admitted. And so I'm right up front, I'm ruining the ending for you. I'm taking away all the suspense, okay? I'm fine. Say that with me. Jay's fine. He's okay. All right. All the tests <laughs> were negative, except a CT scan, which showed that I have a cyst, next to my heart that needs to be monitored about once a year. Okay? Jay's fine. Okay. Um, I got the official news about what this thing was that popped up on the scan Friday morning. Okay? The radiologist came in and definitively said, this is what we think it is, it's of no threat to you, it just needs to be monitored, and, and we need to figure out some other things of what's going on with your system. Let's take more blood. Great. Um, but that, that official word did not come back until Friday morning, which changed my diagnosis. When I initially got the CT scan on Thursday night, all that I knew from the initial reading was that I had a mass near my thymus gland. And one of the potential causes of that mass is a tumor called thymoma. It's an incredibly rare form of cancer of the thymus. So, I spent a night alone in the hospital, unable to sleep because of the very real possibility that I might wake up to a definitive um, diagnosis of cancer the next day and I couldn't sleep I couldn't sleep because I kept thinking about my boys and about Mandy about how much I wanted to be at home in my own bed about how I wished that I could have just finished making their lunches about how, my, how life might never be the same again And I could feel this crippling fear pressing down on me, this heaviness that I could not escape from because I couldn't even leave my own bed. I remembered uh, in the middle of that state, about three in the morning, that earlier in the week I was listening to a podcast that I listen to frequently and the guest on the podcast was a, a pastor, a theologian named Bradley Jerzak, that I've, I really respect, and I've read quite a few of his books. He was coming out with a new book that was talking about deconstruction and his own journey with Jesus and helping other people through this uh, process to find new life uh, in Christ. But he ended um, the conversation um, because for him it always comes back to this idea of Jesus' personal willingness and ability to meet with us, to be with us. And Brad talked about this um, practice that he's used for decades. He used it with his own kids when they were like five years old, uh, called the meeting place. And it's a, a prayer exercise where we intentionally come into God's presence and experience him directly in a place of safety, and ultimately transformation. And this occurred to me. I'd heard about this, and I I don't know that I've ever done it before. And so, in my desperation, I asked God, can I come and meet with you? Because I'm scared, and I need you. So suddenly, um, after after praying that, I found myself uh, in a hammock. Uh, next to a lake that I used to go to when I first became a follower of Jesus. And as I sat on the hammock, kind of looking out at the water, I felt the presence of Jesus come and sit next to me. Now, I never saw his face, and I never heard a word from him, but I did feel his arm come around me, and I leaned hard into his shoulder. And when I did that, I felt incredible comfort and peace, peace that I hadn't experienced for a long time. And the only question that I had for him is, can I stay here with you until I fall asleep? And that's what happened. I woke up the next morning to a nurse asking if she could take more blood. (laughs) Um, But it changed the way that I approached The next day, because I knew, I knew from that moment on, no matter what occurred that day, that I had a place that I could go to and be with the one who loves me and sees me and touches me and heals me. I knew that if I could get to that place once, Jesus would invite me to it over and over and over again. As long as I wanted, he would say, come. Friends, where do you need a place of safety, to meet with Jesus so that he can see you and touch you and heal you today? What forces, internal or external, are crippling you and keeping you from from freedom, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational bondage? What are you experiencing today? It could be um, fear over physical condition, Something I was experiencing this week, it could be uh, the weight of the past, like this woman kind of uh, pressing down on you for year after year after year. Sorrows, resentments, fears, nostalgia, remorse, overwhelming attachment to people or places that are meaningful to you that you wish you could get back to. Satan uses these normal things of life to paralyze and cripple us. whatever it may be, it's important to remember that because all of our burdens, all of our wounds, all of our brokenness are unique, that it's good to remember that Jesus' healing can take different forms because Jesus is no one-size-fits-all Savior. But um, as in many endeavors of faith, trusting Jesus um, for how he might want to meet you and heal you, it takes risk. But you can't know Jesus uh, from secondhand sources. He's a personal God who wants you to know him. And you don't need to twist his arm. He's ready to meet you. But it does feel risky This unnamed woman that we see in our story, she had to step out from her place in the crowd, step out from her hiding to receive from Jesus. She had to trust him enough to respond to his call when he did call her to come near. But she came. She came because she knew something of the fact that Jesus does see us that he does desire to break the bonds that oppress us, that he does bring healing and restoration, and that he will meet with us in the middle of every oppressive force. In fact, he knows acutely what has bent you over. He knows acutely what has bent you over, what continues to weigh on you and keep you from flourishing. So, um, we're going to respond. And If it's okay, I'd like to take a few minutes to kind of facilitate um, and guide us through sort of a face-to-face meeting with Jesus himself, using this meeting place as a guide. Now, you don't have to participate in this, but I invite you to, because I do believe that he's here and he's waiting to meet with each of us. Um, So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close our eyes together. We're going to get comfortable in our seats. Shake out the the energy, if you will. And take a deep breath. Take another deep breath. I want you to imagine a place of safety and warmth. Place where you might go to encounter God, Jesus. Could be outside, like uh, in my example. Could be inside a favorite chair or cozy spot by the fireplace, or maybe you find yourself in the synagogue of our story today. Where do you see yourself? Try to use all your senses to be there. What colors, textures, smells, sounds do you hear? Now imagine that Jesus comes to meet you in this place. What do you see? Is he looking at you? Is he sitting beside you? Is he inviting you to sit beside him? Is he inviting you to come and take a walk? How do you feel next to Jesus? In your meeting place, what do you see and feel Jesus doing? What is his touch like? Jesus often touches those he loves, and touch is a primary way that emotional connection occurs. It gives a channel to release our burdens to him and to receive in exchange God's wellspring of life and hope. What is his touch like? Is he placing a hand of blessing on your heart? A hand of healing on your infirmities? Is he putting his arm around your shoulders? Or inviting you to lay your head in his lap? How do you feel right now? Express that feeling to Jesus. if you could gaze up at Jesus' face, what expression would you see? His orientation towards you is nothing but love and affection. What do you see? Is he radiant with delight to see you? Is he concerned and have eyes of care because he knows what you're going through? Do you see his confidence and assurance that your life is securely held in the Father's hands? What are God's eyes saying to you? Sometimes in these safe places, we might actually hear the voice of God. Is he saying anything to you? It could be an aha moment. It could be a reassurance of truth that you already knew. It could be a still, small voice of insight. Do you hear him saying anything to you right now? Is there anything you want to ask him?